Welcome back. Go ahead and begin. Well, last week we discussed a a Christian worldview, a Christian worldview based on the storyline of the Bible, and then also talked about how so much of the tension that we're experiencing in our society right now is really a result of uh, worldviews and conflict, that that kind of underlying framework that we all have for um, thinking about any, any given issue, uh, that's that framework being different that, that's uh, where so much of the conflict in our society comes from. So as, as, as one author said, we, we call them culture wars, but it might be slightly more accurate to call them wars of religion uh, because it's religion that's at the root. You know, it's, it's this kind of what we worship, how we frame ourselves and the world we live in, that, that's what's at the root of it. There is a, a new normal in America in regards to worldview. The project of secularization has been advancing, um, and with it has come this moral revolution. So a British theologian named Theo Hobson has noted that a moral revolution has three phases. Perhaps you've heard this idea before. Uh, the first phase is that what, what was once can, um, sorry, what was once condemned is now celebrated. So think of cohabitation. What was once condemned is now celebrated. Um, and then the second phase is that what, what was once celebrated is now condemned. Think of traditional marriage. What was once celebrated is now condemned. And then the third phase, those who will not celebrate are condemned. Those who will not celebrate are condemned. Western civilization is emerging into this third phase. Those who will not celebrate are now condemned. Consider a few examples. This liberal guest lecturer at Notre Dame was asked if she could find common ground with conservatives on the topics of race and gender. And she answered, you cannot bring these two worlds together, conservatives and liberals. You must be oppositional. You must fight. Uh, For me, it's a line in the sand. And then there was the man who spent $422 million of his own money to bankroll the campaign to legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And uh, in a dialogue reported in, the, uh, in um, Rolling Stone about his plans, he said, we're going to punish the wicked. That's how he put it, referring to uh, those who oppose same-sex marriage. And then there's the Harvard professor who described his posture toward conservatives this way. The culture wars are over. They lost. We won. My own judgment is that taking a hard line, you've lost, live with it, is better than trying to accommodate the losers. Those who will not celebrate are condemned. And we're seeing this dynamic um, more and more in our society. But really from, from both sides, fewer and fewer people are seeking common ground and exercising civility. And so the, the question that we're asking <clears throat> this morning is how do we deal with the reality of the secular movement in an increasingly polarized society? So this is different from just a- asking about secularism itself. So, for instance, the traditional view of same-sex marriage is that it's contrary to God's design. It's, it's sinful. Uh, but to say that still doesn't address the question of how Christians should interact with a society that disagrees with us on that topic. So th- those are distinct questions, and they, they don't answer each other. 
So having already established the, the Bible storyline as a Christian worldview, uh, and before we get into all these individual topics, uh, just generally we want to ask, how should we relate to and engage a polarized society? What should our posture toward a secularizing society be? <laughs> Uh, and, and first, we'll kind of characterize the cultural crisis that we're experiencing. Uh, then secondly, talk about the biblical response for the church. And then third, um, we'll survey some of the models that uh, Christians have put forward for cultural engagement. And then we'll wrap it up by um, trying to offer some suggestions for, for next steps. So we'll begin by um, characterizing the, the cultural crisis that we're in. And I'll describe that, that crisis by identifying two of the biggest dynamics of our culture. Um, these are fundamental dynamics of 2018 American society and probably the foremost dynamics. Um, first, uh, and far and away the most important, is secularization. Uh, we have become a secular age. So in an important book uh, by a philosopher, Charles Taylor, by that title, A Secular Age, uh, he asks and answers this question. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society? While in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. So it used to be impossible not to believe in God, and now it feels impossible to believe in God. Um, and, and how do we explain that? We, we live in this kind of secular age where it feels impossible uh, to believe in God, where um, this, this uh, scientific age in which uh, science is God and scientists are kind of the priesthood and the sacred texts are these never-ending, you know, most recently published studies um, from the world of science. And, and because uh, science studies the material world, which says that, that nothing, be, you know, in secularism says nothing beyond the material world exists. Science is, is held up as God then. So a secular age is, one, as one author put it, one in which all the emphasis is on the, the seculum, on the here and now, uh, without any concept of the eternal in mind. And then as, as cultural centers of our society are increasingly secular and more openly so, so they're both more secular and more open about it, um, that, that is reflected in our society. As, as the cultural centers go, so goes society. So what are some of those cultural centers of the United States? Uh, you may have some thoughts in your mind. This, what are those sources from which culture largely springs in the United States? Universities in general, maybe elite universities, Ivy League kind of institutions in particular, uh, public education, fashioned as it is by those universities, um, the curriculum of public education, news media, the entertainment industry, and celebrities. Um, cu cultural influence kind of clusters in these, in these places. So the cliches of culture, the things our culture just commonly believes, you know, the common sense of our culture begins to align more with secularism than with theism. As, it's, as secularism is promoted by those cultural centers. So the result of this dynamic is, then is that even those who are religious, you know, people who statistically count as Christian, often actually live and think more in a secular frame than they do in a Christian frame. Um, so while statistics may at times be encouraging, uh, kind of the on-the-ground reality is often a little bit more um, you know, like a crisis or, or complex. 
So as, as secularism advances then from these kind of elite culture centers uh, and becomes more pervasive in what's considered common sense among the majority of people, the church feels increasingly marginalized and even shamed. And so there's this crisis. And it's partly an identity crisis for the church. You know, religious people used to feel like the cool kids club, like you were on the in, the in group, you know, like you, you were respected if you were um, religious and, and supported. You know, if you go to public school, um, you were maybe safe and, and supported as a religious person in that world. But, but now it seems more like a matter of shame and reticence or at least uncertainty. And I, I, don't, I don't want that to slip out. So if you're in public school right now, you've probably felt this. Uh, 30 years ago, you might have felt safe and supported, and now you might feel like you're marked as unclean uh, for being a Christian. Um, and, and that's because this secularism has become the, the new norm in the, in the U.S. I think that we're really being pushed from the, the cultural center to the cultural margin, and that's one of these big dynamics that's been happening for some time, but now seems to be happening more quickly um, and, and seems more painfully obvious. So this secular age idea and the church being kind of pushed to the margins, uh, a place of shame, is one of these big dynamics. And then a second big ni- dynamic that creates this moment of, of crisis for Christians is uh, the rise of the autonomous self. So here I'm talking about what's often called individualism. Uh, but, but that's a complex idea, and it's, it's not just selfishness or self-focus or self-interest, but really something more than that. There's developed this kind of radical individualism that some have called ontological individualism. Ontological it refers to the, the nature of being. Um, how do we know uh, what exists, and can we be sure about it? Uh, and this ontological individualism, individualism says that the self is the only or main form of reality the only or main form of reality the self the individual is the only firm reality so think of the song sung to maria in the sound of music climb every mountain ford every stream follow every rainbow till you find your dream Um, or more recently perhaps more popularly uh, elsa's song in frozen no right no wrong no rules for me i'm free uh, this, this is the, the, the individualism that's kind of becoming more and more radical. It's seen as sort of the, um, the un- understanding of being is based in individualism. And, and this, this kind of message is, is everywhere. Billboards, commercials, um, the essential oils that we get in the Lingle home ha- include a little card that says, be you. I'm like, these are oils, you know? Um, but this message is being promoted everywhere. Stacy joined a, a fitness studio a few years ago. I think you said one of their favorite phrases is, just do you, just do you, you know? These kinds of ideas, like even where they don't really make sense, are just all over the place. Um, the theme is pervasive, these kind of cultural cliches, as I call them. But we shouldn't um, think of... but. Uh, yeah, we shouldn't think of the significance of this shift as primarily, you know, well, people are more self-centered now. They're more selfish now than they used to be. You know, that, that might be true. I don't know that our generation has a corner on selfishness. You know, it's kind of always been there. Um, there's never a golden age of, of selflessness. I think the real significance of the autonomous self is the shift in authority. Uh, where is the center of moral authority? Is the center of moral authority... Uh, a set of transcendent principles that are binding for all of us? 
or is the center of moral authority emanating from within each individual heart? Follow your own dream. Be true to yourself. Be your authentic self. So in a secular age, um, those who hold to belief in the transcendent are pushed to the margin. And in an age that locates the center of morality and meaning in the individual, Christian morality is an existential threat. It's a threat to society. You are a threat um, to society for claiming a binding moral set of principles uh, obligatory on all people. Um, So traditional view of marriage used to be deemed as moral, homosexuality immoral. Um, These are are some of the bigger crisis points in our society. Um, I had that sentence in here. I don't think that makes any sense. Um, The the point is there's been a shift in kind of assessing those issues. Um, There's been a shift in how to understand morality. It comes from within the self rather than a binding set of principles. This is the advance of secular age and rise of the autonomous self. So Christians are being pushed to the margin, believed to be a genuine threat to society. That's the sort of crisis we find ourselves in. So how should we think about this new order, this kind of new day in America um, and our our cultural moment? So we'll just consider for a moment then some some biblical guidance on what our response should be in the midst of this this crisis we find ourselves in. And we'll do that by looking together at, at Psalm 2. We'll kind of just fly through this real quickly. Um, This psalm breaks down into four parts. Uh, First, the nations rage, one through three. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together (laughs) against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So there you see worldly wisdom and the nations raging with it. Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. We want to be free from God. In verses 5 five through 6, I think it should be 4 through 6, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. So they say, let us cast him off. Here's what he says to them. He will terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God's response to the nation's rage. And then in verses 7 through 9, you see the king's inheritance. God set his king on his holy hill. God has put him on the throne. And here's what the king says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then finally, uh, this warning to the world in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As a whole, this psalm teaches us to expect, not be surprised by, uh, not, not to be surprised by, but just to expect that the nations will rage. That is going to happen. They will oppose God and his uh, design for creation. They will not seek redemption. They will not seek to redirect creation back to its creator. Uh, the nations will rage. They will plot this opposition. It's premeditated. It's, it's strategized. Uh, they, uh, they are not innocent or unintentional. They will strategize and persecute for this purpose. 
One author said, since humankind's fall, the center of each culture is found in some form of communal idolatry that shapes all aspects of social and cultural life and organizes them in rebellion against God. Communal idolatry that organizes an entire culture in rebellion against God. A fair description of what's going on here in Psalm 2. And then this corporate rebellion uh, becomes systemic in cultures. Um, Communal idolatry, it's pervasive, such that wherever, wherever people gather and create sort of common patterns of thinking and living, culture, inevitably society will be marked by opposition to God and disharmony with each other. But he who sits in the heavens laughs um, and says, I have set my king on the throne. And then the king on the throne says, yeah, and God said, I'm his son and the nations are my inheritance. And you can plot away and plan your opposition and rage all you want. I will crush you with a rod of iron. Their opposition is futile, in other words. Paul says in Romans 1, a passage we looked at last week, that uh, you know, the, the nations can, can swap the, cre- the, the creator for the creature. They can make that swap. But that is becoming foolish and futile in their thinking. Um, so the, their opposition is futile. And in light of God's response and the king's reign, then probably the most important thing for God's people to, to feel in their bones, you know, to have kind of deeply settled in our convictions about this world, and especially when we engage a, a polarized culture, is, um, is confidence in Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't feel desperate. There is need of courage. Uh, don't fear is the most frequent command in Scripture. What are the implications of that for the way that we think about our culture and the society, the crisis that we're in? Don't fear. Consider the last words of this psalm and take comfort. Be courageous. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Um, so, so remember, Psalm 2 is, is not about the power of the nation's rage, but about the futility of it. Um, so, so in the midst of crisis, we, we take courage. We don't grow insecure. And that's kind of a, a fundamental principle for the Christian then. You know, as we approach this question of engaging a polarized society, we don't do it out of desperation or fear or insecurity. Um, but then as far as strategy, you know, so if, if the Bible encourages us with this sort of these fundamental principles about God's reign over and against all the apparent reigns of kings on earth, um, then with this sense of confidence and courage, you know, what's our strategy for engaging culture? And I want to portray um, just briefly some options to sh- show you the landscape, so to speak. There's a classic book by um, H. Richard Niebuhr called Christ and Culture, in which he outlines these five models uh, that capture how the church tends to interact with culture. So first of all, Christ against culture. The key word there is withdrawal. So examples of this might be like monasticism in the earlier centuries. And in fact, just recently, a journalist named Rod Dreher, a a Catholic, I think, Eastern Orthodox perhaps, um, has uh, written a book released last year called The Benedict Option, referring to a monk named Benedict called A Strategy for uh, Christians in a Post-Christian Nation, in which he recommends that we embrace our identity as exiles and withdraw in, in ways from culture, uh, constructing uh, separate 
countercultures. So he says, communal withdrawal from the mainstream for the sake of sheltering one's faith and family from corrosive modernity and cultivating a more traditional way of life. So this is the let's hole up in a bunker kind of approach uh, to culture. Secondly, there's the Christ of culture. So this would be on the other end of the spectrum. This is an approach that views culture and Christianity um, largely positively, a total embrace of culture so that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Scripture, is almost dressed up in the costume of uh, current uh, culture, whatever it considers to be good news. Representative of this kind of posture would be liberal churches, mainstream churches, especially on sexual ethics. They have you know, expressed kind of a wholesale accommodation and affirmation of culture. Uh, so this would be like the chameleon approach. Let's just blend in with culture and look like it. Accommodation. And then third, Christ above culture. This is an approach that views culture and Christianity as separate uh, and yet tries to synthesize them where possible. So if approach two, accommodation, is kind of a total relevance, let's just look like it, um, Christ above culture is something just short of that. Um, they're two separate things, but trying to synthesize where possible. It's largely positive about uh, many aspects of culture. Church growth strategies that take corporate capitalist America and try to apply it to church life would be an example of this sort of synthesizing um, posture, trying to bring together aspects of culture without critique and just adopt them into Christian culture. The emerging church, if you're familiar with that term, a movement of people like Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, and others have kind of largely bought into a postmodern spirit that's pervasive in our culture and tried to synthesize that with, a, uh, with Christian doctrine and, and life in the church. This would be another example of synthesizing uh, culture and Christianity. So the second and third options are primarily trying to be relevant to culture in one way or another. Fourth, Christ and culture in paradox. Uh, the key word here is dualistic. Again, seeing them as separate, just like number <clears throat> three. And yet here, uh, Christianity and culture are not, are not synthesized, but rather separated. Um, so the, these really exist as two separate kingdoms. And this dualistic view understands God to rule in the world through common grace, but to rule in the church through special grace. And so there's a, a divide between the sacred and the secular. Um, much of fundamentalism exists in this sort of antagonistic to culture sort of position. Dwight Moody said, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all you can. Well, if that was sort of a, a, a posture for cultural engagement, it would be this, this paradox view. Uh, we have to enter the world, regrettably, to do our work um, and to do business, but that is secular. And then to worship God, we pull out of the world and enter the sacred space of the church and, and worship. So that's the dualistic approach. And then fifth, Christ transforming culture. And this is the conversionist impulse uh, Tim Keller calls this the transformationist position, wanting to transform culture, to enter culture in order to transform it. 
You might think of the religious right using political activism to try to transform culture. Or you might think about reform people like us who are wanting to apply a Christian worldview. Does that sound familiar? And apply that to culture in order to bring about change for the good wherever uh, possible. This, this position emphasizes the importance of vocation and doing it well. No one really fits any of these models perfectly. Um, you may not have even known these models existed. How could you fit it perfectly? Uh, but it's, it's helpful to acknowledge that Christians have interacted with culture from different sort of uh, postures and to analyze just how that has happened. Um, I have a stack in, in my office of books that I've just kind of glanced through over the past week. It's about, about uh, maybe 10 to 15 books. Uh, people setting forward their cultural positions, uh, these sort of uh, models of engagement, like the Benedict Option uh, by Rod Dreher. And you could categorize them along this spectrum, you know, these these five different things. So this book goes over here, this book here, you know, they're all over the map. And yet Christians trying to understand, uh, faithful to Scripture, how to engage uh, culture. So the takeaway, I think, ought to be some self-reflection on where we land on this spectrum. You know, what's the posture of your heart and mind toward engaging culture? Uh, Because before we ever make an actual response uh, to culture, there's this sort of posture or stance that we have. You know, what seems intuitive to you in the way that you respond uh, to society and to some of these sorts of crisis dynamics we're experiencing? Okay, so who is the brave person who's going to answer this question? Um, Which of these is best? Which of these five is the best and why? Well, let's then talk about some specific suggestions for cultural engagement. So here are are these models. It'd be fascinating to do a whole class just working through these models and all their various expressions. Um, But this is just a brief segment. I'm trying to build some groundwork, you know, that we just kind of have our minds framed a little bit for as we get into these particular issues over the next couple months um, that we have a, an agreed upon or an understood way of, of approaching them. So here are some, just some practical suggestions for cultural engagement. I don't have evangelism on the list, um, so I, under, I understand, you know, Melissa and Larry, you both kind of mentioned that idea, you know, one by one. So I, I get that. In terms of other suggestions... Um, And there could be more. I've just chosen four um, that have been in my mind lately. The first one is to adopt postures, not uh, gestures, not postures. Uh, Gestures, not postures. So this is your idea, Julia. You know, we don't want to, you know, wholesale buy into a model as much as um, thinking about individual gestures. You know, so rather than a a person always condemning culture, uh, just be the person who condemns parts of culture, like pornography, uh, instead of being the person who's always um, synthesizing culture or consuming culture. You know, be the person who critiques it at certain places. Um, you know, m- maybe, maybe there are critiques that you have in the political category. Don't confuse that with condemnation. You know, maybe you, these political policies don't rise to the level of something that needs to be condemned, it's something we kind of critique thoughtfully. Um, so one author, Andy Crouch, in a book called Culture Making, uh, categorizes these possible gestures as condemn, critique, copy, and consume. 
condemn, critique, copy, and consume. You can kind of see how those relate to those five categories from Niebuhr. But he says we should do each of these things uh, as a gesture, you know, kind of on a case-by-case sort of basis. So we don't choose a fundamental way of responding to everything, uh, but rather we evaluate each element on its own merits. So Tim Keller calls this cultural engagement through blended insights. Blended insights. So that takes kind of these five models and says, what's good? What's the right impulse in each of these things? And how can we blend these insights in our response uh, to culture? And uh, he sees the blended insights of these five models as humble excellence, kind of the idea of vocation, common good, just wanting common good for the society and engaging it toward that end, seeing the church as a counterculture, uh, which would be like that paradox model, um, trying to exist as a counterculture, and then fourth, um, having a distinctive worldview, which is kind of inherent in the transformationist or conversionist sort of tendency, wanting a Christian worldview. So he says, let's, let's blend these insights and, and interact with culture um, sort of uh, case by case, you know, topic by topic. Um, and then second, political co-belligerency. Co-belligerency. It's a big word that I've always liked. It's from Francis Schaeffer. Um, the idea may, may kind of speak for itself. As I heard someone put it uh, this past week, Christians cannot kiss the elephant or the donkey. Don't kiss the elephant or the donkey. So we, we have to be careful to derive our primary citizenship uh, from being citizens of God's kingdom. Uh, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You hear how that kind of hints back to the ideas of Psalm 2? You know, this kind of eternal cosmic power that Christ has by which he'll subject all things to himself? We are citizens of that kingdom. Um, So as the nations rage and the kingdoms we're kind of presently a part of now, we can have a a deep hopefulness in that eternal kingdom, which ties our identity to it. All of our hopes are in that kingdom. So we need to work at getting beyond tribal politics, not giving up opinions, uh, but holding them humbly. Uh, One author called it principled pragmatism. About all these political policies, the wrangling that goes back and forth, having principles, but applying them pragmatically and, and humbly. Uh, ben Sass wrote a book recently called um, Vanishing American Adult. You may have heard of that. Uh, but in a session called What Does Jerusalem Have to Do with Washington on this kind of matter of cultural engagement, he says, let's be humbly realistic about what politics can and cannot be. Let's recover a sense that politics can only work well if it's a framework, but not the center. It can only work well if you're not finding your greatest hopes in politics. And I think that's a helpful word for Christians. We kind of sense this, you know, being pushed to the margin, kind of points of view that are prevalent among evangelicals are being pushed to the margin and coming under greater fire. Uh, We need to not find our identity in those things. We need to be willing to let go of our political, even our American identity, and be completely submitted to this um, primary identity as citizens of heaven. It's like this process that Hebrews 12 describes of laying aside every weight, the things that cling closely, the things that just kind of hold us back, 
from a fullness of identity in Jesus Christ. You need to shed those things, uh, leave them behind. Um, and then third, oh, we're all on the same page here. Excellence in vocation. Um, so do excellent work under the glory of God. Uh, I'm thinking of Matthew where it says you're the salt of the earth. Jesus says you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The realm in which most of us will do that uh, is our vocation, you know, where we spend most of our hours each week. Uh, whatever that calling may be, we want to do it well to the glory of God that others may see uh, those good works and give glory to God in heaven. You've probably heard Dorothy Sayers' comment, if you're a carpenter, build good tables. You know, do your work with excellence. If you're an employee, Paul gives this advice. Be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And that's what we want to do as believers in the places that God has called us to, by our good works, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Uh, and so if you are doing art as a Christian, you know, you want to do that with excellence. And in everything we do, uh, we, we want that to be true of us. I had coffee with a friend this past week who works for a, a startup recruiting firm here in the, art, uh, the um, Research Triangle Park, and they're recruiting, um, they're recruiting for mid-level management positions, uh, both here in the U.S. but overseas as well, with the goal of getting Christians into the workplace uh, in hard-to-access areas. They're working especially in Dubai. And they're hiring um, training managers, a recent endeavor, hiring training managers for a Filipino fried chicken company in Dubai um, that has about 15,000 employees, exclusively Muslims. They're trying to place Christians into that setting, um, you know, these kind of positions of influence in that company. So my friend said they measure success for their company um, in two categories, luminosity and profitability. Uh, luminosity, how many believers are they sending to the field? And profitability, how successful is their business model? That, that's just a great way of thinking about excellence as a Christian vocation. Profitability, uh, but also how, what, what's the kingdom impact of, of these things? Not God won't call all of us to that exact kind of thing. I just thought it's a good example of... Um, Excellence in vocation for the glory of God. Vocation of parenting. We want to be excellent in discipling our children. This is a calling that coexists with our jobs, our careers. Um, in some cases, in other cases, it may stand alone. But we, we want to be excellent in this vocation as well. Discipling our children. Uh, and, and in this case, to think, um, to think carefully, reflectively, not merely reflexively, about culture and how to interact with it. We want to equip them for flourishing. And then uh, fourth, exercise civil disagreement, not civil disobedience, civil disagreement. Uh, this is a dying art. You know, one, one book I just saw released last week is titled An Age of Outrage. It is, isn't it? feels like everything is outrage. Everyone is outraged by something. Or everything. Um, don't blame it on the millennials. Uh, we're all in that together. Um, Alan Jacobs, in his book, How to Think. Has anyone read that book? It's a, a great book on worldview and inter interacting with culture. How to Think. 
um, suggests seeking out a charitable uh, representative of opposing viewpoints and, and engaging intentional dialogue with them. You know, so maybe you could think of a neighbor or a coworker, a uh, member of another church or of this church who you can seek out, who you know differs from you uh, on some political policy or cultural issue, and have a conversation with them and engage in that conversation with civility, with kindness and humility. So this is simple. Just have personal conversations. You know, try to do this with someone more conservative than you and with someone more progressive or liberal than you are. I don't mean just slightly different. I mean really different. Like they're in a different section of the spectrum. Um, and ask for permission from them to discuss these things uh, in a civil sort of way, seeking to achieve true understanding. My hope is that, by and large, um, that um, guy who bankrolled all 50 states, you know, campaigned for same-sex marriage, the Notre Dame lecturer, the Harvard professor, are not representative of the average individual. Most people would be willing to engage these things with some civility with you. And then consider together what policies or structures might allow for accommodation of both sides, both perspectives. Um, a, re- a recent study in the, uh, reported on in the Washington Post uh, suggests that people may seem more reasonable to you when you speak with them in person rather than read their words. So let's outlaw, well, I guess we can't outlaw. What does that say about social media? Um, so n- not surprisingly, it's the, the point is we're more empathetic in person than in print. Um, so engage people in person. Whenever you're tempted, maybe, to engage something on the Internet, don't. Say, who do I know who represents that point of view? And then schedule coffee with them. Um, this includes the art of hospitality. Uh, think again of the story of Rosaria Butterfield that I mentioned last week. Um, this secular lesbian feminist professor at Syracuse who was, in, who was engaged in correspondence by a Christian couple, a man who was a pastor and his wife. Then she was invited over for dinner, then another dinner, then another dinner, and on and on until she became a Christian. You know, who might you be able to have over for dinner um, that would really be out of the box for you, uh, for your family, to engage on some of these kinds of things? And then when you do that, just remember, arguing vehemently against same-sex marriage is probably not evangelism. It's probably closer to sin than it is to evangelism. Um, So we want to remember to engage from a a spirit of humility and out of uh, desire for for love and... uh, yeah, so I, I see there, you, you see there in, in talking about that, there's kind of like this impulse toward the synthesis, engaging culture, you know, like how can we find common ground? So there is going to be some of that. And maybe you'll find often there is no common ground, or common ground is hard to find, or policy-wise there's some common ground, even if not in terms of moral transcendent you know, principles. Um, but th- think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What are the political implications of that verse? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Not that we leave behind our convictions or opinions when we open our mouths, but that we hold these things humbly with a view toward making peace. Um, So there are some suggestions. I think they probably all fall under the category of the first one, gestures, not postures, uh, on how to interact with um, culture. 
What I'd love you to do in a little group exercise time now. I do group exercises because my wife really loves them. Um, actually, she, she, uh, she, she said, why do you have to do group exercise? And I, think, I think they're helpful for all of us to be able to talk. You know, in a room like this, we can't all kind of process this. But if we split up into groups, then, uh, then we can do that. So talk together in a group of three or four about how you can engage culture in the places that God has put you in, this coming, in the coming week. Specifically in these four categories. Because I know that's a nebulous kind of question. You can be like, ah, that's why I'm here to try to figure that out. Well, specifically in one of these four categories, um, how can you engage culture in the places that God has put you this coming week? And maybe you have a really insightful fifth way, you know, something else that you want to share with your group. Uh, Feel free to do that as well. Take about five minutes to discuss it among yourselves, and then we'll pull back together and conclude in prayer.